Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we find ourselves in Genesis 27 and 28, the stories of Jacob deceiving Isaac to receive his blessing and Jacob's late night encounter with God at Bethel. We wonder at the ways of God who works outside of human systems of privilege, blessing the younger son over the older, and prophesying through the mother rather than the father. We struggle with the deception of Rebekah and Jacob, and what it means to follow God faithfully when one is excluded from power. And we marvel at God's gracious appearance to Jacob on the road to Haran, reminding us to be attentive to God, who often shows up in the most unexpected places. Hang on to your sheepskins, everybody. It's about to get real. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am fine, but the much more interesting question is, how are you this week? Hey, I'm doing, I'm doing great. As you know, this week, uh, my wife and I had our baby. Woo-hoo! Uh, yeah, so life has changed very dramatically at my house. Um, so now we have a three and a half year old who is still being three and a half. And also we have a tiny little squishy baby who is... Mm-hmm. Pretty awesome. His name, uh, I know people are going to be disappointed that we didn't actually name him Saucy, which was <laughs> just what my daughter that wanted to name him as we talked about on the podcast. But so it, we, um, we have named him Evan. And so Evan, little Evan Williamson arrived in the world this week. And I was reading this week this, this same section of text that we'll be reading today in the Narrative Lectionary. I was reading it with one of my students this past week, and we were working through the Hebrew of the text and there's a part where it says, ha Evan Hazot, like this, this Evan, which yeah. Evan means stone. So, I mean, they didn't, Bobby didn't name his son Stone. It just, you know, well, maybe he did. <laughs> but in any case, it was, it was this like little, little like, it was like a little spark, like a little electric shock of happiness when I saw that phrase and just had heard about the birth of your little boy. So, yay, Mazaltov. Yeah, you'll thank never you. sleep again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I love that uh, when we were talking about that earlier. Like, I love that this text and that and that birth like happened together. Like, that's to me that's fascinating. That's pretty and, cool. And maybe a, some sort of a hopefully positive omen. And I liked when we were talking about it earlier. We talked. We you we. Or I think you translated it high Evan Hazot as this rock. And I'm like, my kid's name is Rock. That, like, that's, that's how right. awesome. And then I was like, smell what the rock is cooking. <laughs> And then you're like, (laughs) 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 oh, smell what that rock is cooking. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. That's good stuff. It's not that great, but I'm sleep deprived. And so it is, it is what it is. We must, (laughs) we'll take it. We'll take it. Well, welcome to the world, sweet baby Evan. And, and what a happy connection between our little section of text and that birth. Yeah. All right. So today we are in. Genesis 27, 1 to 23, and then in Genesis 28, 10 to 17. This, as you know, is the story of how Jacob 
ends up with the blessing of Isaac. But before we get to that story, we've last when we last we left our story, we were back um, in Genesis 22, mm-hmm. where Isaac was nearly sacrificed by Abraham. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. we've jumped basically the Isaac's whole adult life to the very end of his life where his sons are vying for his blessing. So what do you think we need to know in order to get us from the story in Genesis 22 to where we are today? Yeah, so there, there are two main things I would want people to know. One of them is just sort of plot related. And so in terms of the plot, Isaac has married a woman named Rebecca, who, like Abraham, is willing to leave everything she knows on faith for this new life. And like Sarah, she is initially barren. She eventually gets pregnant with twins, and it is a really difficult pregnancy. And so she she goes to God about it, and God tells her, there are two nations in your womb, and the older will serve the younger. Yeah. So then that points to this other piece of background that I would like to offer, which is just the way of the day was that the oldest son inherits the lion's share of of the father's estate. It's like the honor of the father passes all down to the oldest son. This is not a rule that is established in the Torah or by the Torah. This is just the background against which our story is set. This is the way things were done. So it would be surprising to hear that the the older will serve the younger. And this is an important theme, of course, in in our text today. Yeah, so the text you're talking about is the prophecies in Genesis 25, verse 23. And I agree, that's a, that is an enormously important uh, text as background for what we're doing today. And, and in my mind, important to keep in mind that in some ways, the story that we're reading in Genesis 27 is a playing out. I mean, it, exactly how they're connected is not entirely clear. We're going to have to talk about that mm-hmm, as we go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it has been pre-prophesied by God, yes. preordained by God, that the story is going to turn out the way that it does turn out. And so then the sort of the relationship of God's enacting of the blessing and the human kind of actions that lead to the actual blessing, like there's some complicated and interesting stuff that's going on in there. Yes, for sure. Okay, so the narrative lectionary text today is Genesis 27, 1 to 4, and then 15 to 23, and then a little bit in Genesis 28, 10 to 17. We're going to add a few verses, well, actually kind of a chunk of text in the middle just for (laughs) (laughs) completion's sake. But anyway, so that's, that's where we're headed. So I'm picking up in Genesis chapter 27, verse 1, and I'm reading the New Revised Standard Version. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called his elder son Esau and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, See, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Then prepare for me savory food such as I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may bless you before I die. Okay, so here we have sort of the end of life expectation. Isaac has realized his days are numbered. He's thinking about the legacy that he's going to leave to his sons. And I mean, presumably he's thinking about the most important legacy of all, which is the blessing that he's been given Mm -hmm. by God through Abraham to be the father of a people who are going to bless the world. Um, so this is not an insignificant little kind of moment, mm-hmm. moment of inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What do you make of, like the text takes time to give us this detail that he's old and his eyes are dim and he can't see. 
Do you make anything of that? I mean, is, is this just like setting up the plot or is, is that significant in some way? That's such a good question. And I, so there are two things in my mind as I read it, but one of them is Midrash, is a, is a Jewish story, is not in the text. Yeah. So one of them, I do think about it as, as setting up the story because as, as we move through this story, it's really important that Isaac can't see yeah. where the story doesn't make any sense. There also is a, is a midrash about the experience that Isaac had up on the mountain with Abraham. The tears of the angels fell into his eyes and that after that, he, he never saw properly. So in that oh, case, it would be his, you know, his eyes were, were dimmed from then. I don't know. What do, you, what do you make of the way they sort of build up to um, this moment of Isaac approaching his death? I, th- I always, whenever I see that um, his eyes are dim and he could not see, you get something similar to that, which is said of the, uh, the prophet Eli uh, in 1 Samuel, who is a seer who cannot see, mm. uh, by which they mean he sort of lost the ability to prophesy. And so mm-hmm. I wonder sometimes if this is connected to that, sort of a, not just a comment on Isaac's eyesight, but actually yeah. on his insight, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. He does not know really what's happening. yeah. And, you know, one of the things that people often comment on about Isaac is that he's, he is the most feeble, mm-hmm. I guess, of the patriarchs all mm-hmm. the way through the story. Like, he's a, kind of a passive character for his whole mm-hmm. life. Yeah. He's almost sacrificed by his father. And then in this story, he's sort of manipulated by his family at the end. And Rebecca is really, throughout the story, she's the one who is the most active character, which is kind of an interesting dynamic. It doesn't just start right here. But Rebecca yeah. has kind of been the one who is going back and forth with God and who's doing all the things that a patriarch is supposed to do. So I wonder, I wonder if there's some comment here about Isaac, who really doesn't know what's going on. It's not just that he can't see what's going on. It's that he just yeah. doesn't know what's going on. Like he, He's yeah. not a reliable conveyor of the, of the blessing or something like that. That's interesting. And it, it certainly fits with the weird stuff that happens. <laughs> yeah. I might be overreading the text, but I... I you know, sometimes a good overreading uh, can be generative. <laughs> Bears some real fruit. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, you know, I'm just curious. Isaac could have just called Esau and given him the blessing. Yes. But instead, he gives them this whole task. Like, and it's fairly specific. Take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, go to the field, hunt game, prepare savory food, bring it to me. So why do you think all of those details, are they significant to you? You know... So the way that I framed that question was a much more sort of crass. (laughs) What does eating your favorite meal have to do with giving an innermost blessing? Like, is he just trying to bribe Esau into doing what he wants? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I want you to go hunt me some fresh game. And so I'm going to hold the blessing over your head until you do it. But there is, you know, last time we talked about this word hineni in Mm -hmm. uh, Here I Am as a real sort of statement of interdependence and radical presence to another person or to God. And, and it's in this story, too, when, when, he, when Isaac calls Esau, Esau answers, Hineni. Yeah. And so I start with this sense of them as really being pretty oriented towards each other, yeah. pretty interlocked. And so that makes me think Esau doesn't need a bribe if— If Isaac just sent him out, he would do it. Yeah. So then I don't like that answer. So the answer I sort of came (laughs) to was that I think there is something 
serious happening in this blessing. Like it's not a perfunctory announcement. It is like a metaphysical alchemy that that requires some kind of energy or mood or headspace. Like, you know, I've been thinking, I was actually thinking about how hard it's been, I know for my rabbi, and I'm sure for many of our listeners who are clergy, to lead a service and really hold the spiritual energy of a service and transmit it to other people when they had to do it alone in the sanctuary. Like how that, yeah. how the energy is just, is just different. Like it, you, you can't just do it. <laughs> you can't just have a spiritual experience. You know, it's, it's embodied in some way. And so I started wondering about, is there something about some kind of embodied state that Isaac feels like he has to get to in order to have the capacity hmm. to authentically give this blessing? Yeah. I love that a, idea. A lot of words. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there is something to the, you know, the, the making of a moment, however, however you want to think about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it is food that is part of that process of making a moment what it is. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, my kid's actually a week old. And so on his one week old birthday, we're like, we got to commemorate his birthday. <laughs> this is my mother-in-law who is very <laughs> invested okay, in her good. grandchildren in, in beautiful ways. Yeah. But you couldn't just say like, hey, it's your birthday, right? You're like, we, had, we put a candle in a cookie and we're like, here, like it's your birthday. Like there's something about the, the eating of food uh, as a marking of the occasion. I also read this a little bit as like, this is a very manly invitation, right? Mm -hmm. Take your weapons, Mm -hmm. go to the Mm -hmm. field, kill something and bring it back and eat. And we have seen in the earlier text, and I guess it's in chapter 26 that Esau really is Isaac's favorite. And it's because he's a manly man. And Jacob is more. Jacob dwells in tents. That's yeah. what it says about him. Jacob right. dwells in tents and Esau's out in the field with yeah. his quiver. Yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. Um, and Jacob is the favorite of his mother and uh, Esau is the favorite of his father. That's and right. so in my mind, there is this text is sort of setting up the, the manliness mm-hmm. dynamic or the, the, the social expectation of, you know, of, of what a man does, which kind of plays into the, to this transfer of the blessing in, in some important ways. Yeah. Do you make anything, you know, Back in chapter 25, we've, we've also had another story where Esau gives up his birthright. Mm-hmm. And that story also involves the cooking of stew. Mm-hmm. In that case, it's Jacob who has prepared the stew. Mm-hmm. And Esau who comes in and is famished and trades his birthright for the stew. Do you make anything of that connection of the birthright and the blessing and the food? That's a good question. I don't, I mean, I don't have an immediate thought about it other than sort of, again, driving me back to this idea of like, we're not floating heads that make logical (laughs) decisions and function only in that sort of realm. We are, we are people with bodies and our bodies respond to things and our bodies need food and like food. And I don't know. I don't know if it's a sort of, I know that, you know, at least in the Jewish tradition, people will sort of make fun of Esau (laughs) Yeah. For being willing to give up his birthright for food. Yeah. So I guess I could see taking that angle here too, but I don't know. I would do a lot of things if I were really hungry. Yeah, you raise an interesting point there, which is what attitude the text invites or encourages us to have toward Esau. Yeah. I think making fun of him is certainly in view 
or at least an, an available response to him. Mm-hmm. I also read him, especially at the end of this, uh, this story today, and, and especially, especially at the very end of the Jacob cycle when he returns and Esau mm-hmm. welcomes Jacob home. I, I read Esau as a, almost like a tragic figure in some ways. Like He's a good guy underneath there. Mm-hmm. But he just doesn't, he doesn't understand yeah. what has been offered to him or what has been granted to him. And he's, and he's kind of flip with it and he loses it, but he's able to kind of come back around. So I don't know what it is about me. You're usually the one who's empathizing with the characters who you're not supposed to empathize with. But I do think Esau is a comical character here and like what he's doing is ridiculous. But I also think, oh, you know, honey. It is. I mean, we're not going to read all the way to the end of this story today, but I, I don't know anyone who can really read through this story and hear Esau's pain to realize what has just happened and not feel for him. Yeah. I mean, it's just excruciating. Yeah. Okay. So the narrative lectionary has us just picking up again in verse 15. We thought just for completeness sake, we'll, we'll go ahead and read the Verses in the middle there between five and 14. So it's not actually part of the text that's planned for the narrative lectionary, but it's, you know, it's important to the story. So this is going to be a rather long section of text from five to 23. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me savory food to eat that I may bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my word as I command you. Go to the flock and get me two choice kids so that I may prepare from them savory food for your father such as he likes. And you shall take it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to his mother, Rebekah, Look, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a man of smooth skin. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my word and go, get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. And she put the skins of the kids on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she handed the savory food and the bread that she had prepared to her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game so that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went up to his father Isaac, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. I have an idea for you. Sorry? I have an idea for you. Yes. For Halloween. I (laughs) want you to dress up as Jacob dressing up as Esau. Dress up as Jacob dressed up as Esau. Yeah. That is so meta. I love that. Well, you... (laughs) Like he's like balancing animal skins on his hands and his neck while he's carrying some kind of meaty stew and wearing his <laughs> brother's clothes. Yeah. That's that's what's happening. How would you even? How you would don't you think even they're like attached to him the in some way? Skins, like, 
it just a is, light epoxy or something. It's hysterical. This description <laughs> is hysterical. Yeah, no, it is true. Yeah, I yes. No, I appreciate the pointing to the humor of the story because <laughs> I think I get so invested in the like, I don't know, the cunning of it all that I sort of forget yeah. it's a little bit ridiculous. It's a little ridiculous, but it's also cunning. Yeah, but it does say something about Isaac that he like that this ridiculous plot works on him, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to your back to your original point that he's he he has lost some capacity for understanding, yeah. not just vision. You sound like my son Jacob, but you have hairy hands. <laughs> so, yeah. I guess I better give my blessing. I know it's irrevocable. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this plot is advanced very clearly by Rebecca. Yeah. who overhears and then takes it on herself to sort of set things in motion. What do you make of Rebecca? Like, let me just ask it that way. Like, what do you make of Rebecca? Like, well, how, do you th- how do you think about her engaging in this? I mean, you could call it deception. I guess you could probably call it something else too. What do you make of the way she sort of intervenes in, the, in this story? It's, it's hard. It is hard for me. It's hard. I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it. Can you say more and, about why that is? Well, I mean, it's, it's dishonest. Like mm-hmm. she's, Isaac has a, has a plan to give this blessing. And it is, you know, the sort of expectation of the world they live in that this is how it's going to go. Yeah. And that the text has told us that Jacob is Rebecca's favorite. So it's a little bit unclear to me whether she's doing this because Jacob is her favorite or because she had that prophecy from God. Yeah. Or if Jacob is her favorite because she had that prophecy. Like the most sympathetic read I can offer, at least initially, is that that she thinks she is moving forward God's plan by doing this, that she believes herself to be an agent in that plan. What do you, what, how, how do you respond? Does this bother you as much as it bothers me? I, yeah, I mean, I wrestle. I, I, I think this text is inviting us to wrestle with issues like these issues that you're pointing out. It is deceptive and it is dishonest. And she has, in some sense, broken trust within the family. And she has done it to... I mean, I think in my mind, the sympathetic reading that you give is probably the one I want to pursue the most, which is she knows how the prophecy goes. And so she is trying to make sure that the prophecy comes out the way the prophecy is supposed to come out. So she's the only one who knows, right? Mm -hmm. She received this Mm -hmm. directly from God. We have no indication that she's ever told Isaac, that she's Mm -hmm. ever told Jacob or Esau. She's the only one who knows. And so in that sense, she's kind of the one who seems to be left to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you know, God has caused the problem (laughs) by working outside of the bounds of what's expected and Mm -hmm. by giving the prophecy to a woman who has no direct access to power Mm -hmm. to make it be Mm -hmm. otherwise. And so what Mm -hmm. else is she going to do, right? Right. At the same time, I do like... It troubles me that she has to be, be deceptive in this way with people yeah. who are so close to her. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, but, but I, you know, 
but I think I get it at the same at the same time. I you know, and, and the text does not tell us, so we cannot know. But this is the last moment, right? <laughs> like Rebecca has been waiting their whole life f- mm-hmm. for something to happen mm-hmm. that's going to make this prophecy come true. And like here's the this is the last minute, right? As soon as Esau gets back with the game and the stew, like the game is over, and so she acts. What would have happened if she didn't act? Right. I don't know. Like, is God going to swoop in? Right. What are we supposed to do if someone, if, if a character in the text gets a prophecy, are they, are they then, is it, it is, is it good and right to act in a way that makes that prophecy more likely to come to fruition? Or are you supposed to just be like, oh, that's interesting, and like sit back like you're watching a movie and see how it unfolds? I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. But I think it's reasonable for her to think she's supposed to have a role in this. Yeah. So God has showed up to her, or at least God has spoken audibly to her back in chapter 23. We know because we've prepared for the podcast today that God's about to show up, you know, in a kind of a dramatic, you know, royal mm-hmm. staircase kind of way to Jacob in just a minute. And so God is fully capable uh, in this text of just showing up and setting things right the way, the way right. that they need to be set. But for whatever reason, God hasn't done it yet, and it's not clear that God is going to do it. And so Rebecca is left having to do it. I, I think that's really interesting. Like, I, I don't know that it makes the, the deception any more palatable, mm-hmm. but maybe necessary in a way that I think theologically, like, how are we going to dig through that, I think is an, is an interesting question. Yeah. Now, Jacob, uh, do you read Jacob as a eager co-participant in this plan or as reluctantly going along or how do you how do you think about his role here it's a really good question because after this story he really becomes quite a trickster yeah and so much so that it's um, it's easy to forget coming back to the story that this was all rebecca's idea this was not jacob's idea yeah but in this story he almost I feel like he almost seems kind of passive. Like his mom tells him to do something and he's like, well, I don't, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. You know? And she says, leave it to me. Yeah. And so he does it, but I don't know. He doesn't necessarily seem reluctant. He just seems, he just, I don't know. He just seems like he's going along with the plan. Yeah. I mean, at that one, at one point in the middle there in verse, 12, he's actually, he is afraid that he's going to get found out and get cursed for it. So there's a moment at which I think he is afraid to do it and he doesn't want to go along with it because he's afraid of the repercussions. And so it's Mm -hmm. only when Rebecca says, okay, I'll take the curse for you. Like she kind of puts herself on the line in a way Mm -hmm. that frees him to follow the plan, even though he is kind of afraid to do it. So that's just, to me, that's really interesting. The, the extent to which Rebecca is the one who is making all of this stuff happen. And Jacob maybe would not have gone along with it um, were it not for her willingness to, she's, she's not only willing to put the plan forward, but she's also willing to take the implications if the plan doesn't work. That's a really good point because Jacob has already done some, like he's already weaseled the birthright out yeah. of Esau. So I, I shouldn't read him as sort of like totally innocent and neutral in this, but that willingness to take associated risk. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's not quite there. His mom takes the risk. 
I think that's right. And but I also think that what you said about uh, about Jacob sort of developing in the story into a trickster mm-hmm. is is also probably right. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But you know, the story of the birthright is not really a trickster story. Not really a trick. He's a, a little sh- manipulative. He's but... a shrewd businessman yes. in that story who yes. knows he's got something of value and knows he wants something. And mm-hmm. he just, you know, but it's a fair trade. I'll do this if you do that. And Esau, right? And Esau says, agrees yes. to it. Yeah, which is different yes. than this kind of like yes deception. Is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he does become a trickster. I think for the first time, maybe in, in, in this text, and then and then he does continue on. Mm-hmm. We've been tossing around the word trickster a little bit, uh, which I think is not a word that everybody probably uses. Um, in the biblical studies, as you know, it has sort of a a meaning, the trickster motif. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that at all or h- how you think that might enter into how we read this text? Yeah, I mean, I think of the trickster motif in two different ways. One of them is more theological, and it's that a, a lot of what God is doing in these early stories especially is upending existing power structures. Yeah, And the way that happens is... It's sometimes through some, you know, wild intervention on God's part, you know, through the crossing of the Red Sea or, you know, the plagues or something like that. But sometimes it's through through a character who who tricks the powerful one yeah. and then ultimately enacts God's plan through that trickery. Yeah. I think it also, like, if we think of these as stories that came from an oral tradition that were, you know, passed down through generations and told around the fire— they're very entertaining. Yeah. And it's hard for us, I think, reading this as like, this is our scripture. You know, especially I think the Jewish community reading about Jacob. Jacob is the one whose name is changed yeah. to Israel. We are yeah. named for him. And look how he behaves. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes I think we, I think we modern people, I myself, take it a, a little bit too seriously that there was sort of an entertainment value, yeah. a, li- a little bit of delight that was taken in watching the powerful, watching the man fall, that's just sort of woven into these stories. Yeah, I think both of those points are really important. And so if you think about tricksters being people who are outside the bounds of official power, figuring out how to use their wits to gain power or to achieve their ends in the only way they can, because the Mm -hmm. systems of power Mm -hmm. are not in their favor. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And so we've got the we've got the wife in the story and the younger son who are both positioned outside of power. That's right. And they're the ones who ultimately control where the blessing goes with God's approval presumably, mm-hmm. but they are the ones who ultimately control where power goes because that was the only way they had any access to power. That's interesting. That is also entertaining. And your point that this is the, you know, the eponymous ancestor of Israel of modern day Jews, that's really interesting. Like, so then you think back on, you know, what does that say about us as a people that this is our ancestor? And, you know, in a, in one way, what it says is we might not be the most powerful group of people on the block, but we're pretty smart Mm -hmm. and we can, we can take care of business when business needs to be taken care of like that. It's not a negative thing at all. It's, it's a, like, People may not, you know, be willing to give us things, but we can use our wits to get what we need. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Hi everyone, I'm Marie Maynard O'Connell, pastor of Park Hill Presbyterian Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, USA, and I am a Bible Worm supporter at the Bible Study Liturgy Worm level. I had finally decided that I was ready to work with the narrative lectionary when the pandemic hit. And then over that summer, I realized that several of the resources I was planning to use had shuttered. I was pretty upset, but I turned to Bible Worm and quickly realized that not only could I benefit from Bobby and Amy's fantastic exegesis and Bible study, but that I had found a community as well. I appreciate not only having colleagues from across the globe to think and study with, but also to be able to share the Bible study with a small class at my church. And the liturgy has literally been a lifesaver. It's the best use of my continuing education fund yet. I hope you'll consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter too. You can join for as little as $4 a month. Just go to patreon.com backslash Bible Worm podcast for details. And now back to this week's podcast. So the end of this story has just these two ancestors, two of the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob. They're the only ones who are in the room, presumably. Isaac does not know who's actually in the room with them. He thinks Esau is in the room with them. So there's this kind of intimate moment between father and son, and also this Mm -hmm. sort of like, it is a contrived moment that it's not clear to the father what's actually happening here. There's just something really striking about that. I don't, I don't even quite know what to, to do with it, but the, the sort of combination of the intimacy of this story and also the, the trickery of this yeah. story. It, I mean, I think it's part of what makes this story, like, yes, it has an entertainment value for sure, but it would part of like the pathos of this yeah. story. You know, I know at this point, you probably think I'm obsessed with the word hinini and I'll stop talking about it after this, but the beginning of, so it, in verse 18, when Jacob goes in and says, Father, and his father responds to him, Hineni. Mm-hmm. Which again, like, Jacob never says Hineni to anyone. And to me, that just again is a, a hmm. cue that, like, he's not really fully present to any of this. Like, he, <laughs> you know, like, he's, he's doing a thing, but, he, but he's not really in that kind of tight relationship. But it just adds to sort of the sorrow of it that, like, Isaac is really oriented towards this son, not even knowing which one it is yet, mm-hmm. but it's not that sort of, I don't know, trust and presence is not in this moment, at least requited. It's, mm-hmm. it's tragic. I had not really thought about that, but, you know, when Jacob says my father, and we hear later Isaac say, this is, this is Jacob's voice, but Esau's hands. But at mm-hmm. this moment, he only has the voice. Mm-hmm. So he thinks he's responding to Jacob, I think, like initially until he feels the hand. So his Hineni is actually directed to Jacob, even though he's a little confused about it. You know what I mean? I would think so. I mean, he asks, which of my sons are you? But you're right. He's only heard, yeah. he's only heard his voice at this point. So I don't know what I'm doing with that other than to say, like, Isaac was willing to be fully present to Jacob. Mm-hmm. Even though mm-hmm. in the story, Esau is always Isaac's favorite. Favorite, right. I don't know. It just, do you think Isaac really had no idea that there was something going on? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it's hard to know, but I guess I just wonder, like, did he know on some level? 
I don't know. I don't know if it's just supposed to be entertaining. Like, come yeah. closer so I can feel you. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I don't know. This is probably heretical in some way, but this the end of this story always, or this part of the story, always reminds me of Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, where she yes. comes in and it's the wolf dressed up like her grandmother. And he's, yeah. he's like, hey, your teeth are really sharp or whatever. I forget how that story goes. But yeah, right. All the better to smell you with, my dear. How does it go? All the better to <laughs> taste you with, my well, dear. I don't think you're supposed to start with the teeth. No, you think the teeth are the end of that story. But anyway. Yeah. And so there is this sort of like entertainment value that's there. And yeah. you as the listener are trying to figure out. But there is also this sense of like, like, come on, Little Red Riding Hood. Like, you, you got it. You're so, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're so close. You got yeah. big eyes, Grandma. Because I'm a wolf, you know? So like, <laughs> you feel like Isaac is so close and he ought to get it. And, it's, and he's, not been, he's not been completely deceived. It's like, he knows something's up. He just can't quite make it there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel really bad for Isaac. I, I do think this story is funny, but I also, I, I feel for Isaac. I do. No, I do. I mean, it's, yes, it's a, I feel for, I mean, I feel, I feel like they're so like authentically present, Isaac and Esau both in what's happening here. And to introduce deception, even if it is in the name of something larger is painful. Yeah. It's really painful. Yeah. All right, Amy, anything else you want to say about this story in Genesis 27? Um, I don't think so. My daughter <laughs> has been watching Peppa the Pig. So we were introduced to Peppa via, via books, uh, and we mm-hmm. didn't really realize that Peppa is British. And so it was rather shocking uh, when we watched Peppa for the first time, and she would say things like, I don't believe so. <laughs> and we're I, like, oh, I wow. Did- I I read somewhere that there's like a whole like swath of um, preschoolers that American preschoolers that are starting to speak with British accents because of Peppa Pig. That is amazing. I would love that if that Sweet. were to be the case with Anna Kate. I think that is what you should work on. This fall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good times. Good times. All right. So the text is going to skip us down to Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. Can you just give us like a little bridge, like what happens after the, after the blessing that Isaac mistakenly yeah. gives to Jacob? Yeah. So, so Isaac gives this beautiful blessing after he asks again, are you really Esau? <laughs> and yeah. Jacob's like, yep. So he gives this beautiful blessing and just as he is finishing it, Esau comes in and Isaac realizes that, it, that he had given the blessing to Jacob and Esau realizes that he has lost the blessing. And, and, and Esau says, you know, is it, can't you give me, bless me too, father. Like you must have a blessing for me. And Isaac says, like, I, I gave my best blessing to Jacob. Like there really is a sense that yeah. you only had one best blessing to give. You can't, it's, this is not just, these are not just words. Like something is happening. Something is understood to be transferring for real as these blessings are given. So Isaac does give a blessing to Esau, but it, it's like seriously, you know, B grade blessing. <laughs> and then Esau is understandably, I suppose, murderously angry about this whole situation. Yeah. And so Rebecca, like Rebecca and Isaac together send Jacob off. They're like, you've got to go. 
you have to leave because yeah. your brother's going to literally kill you. Yeah. So he does. He sets out. I think it's so interesting that at, right at the beginning of chapter 28, Isaac blesses Jacob again, this time mm-hmm. knowing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I just think that's an, a, an interesting detail. Isaac then says, okay, well, what's done is done. So, and it's a really kind of another beautiful blessing. May God bless you and make you fruitful and numerous. And he invokes the blessing of Abraham, the land that God gave to Abraham. So mm. Isaac has now knowingly conveyed the, the blessing of Abraham onto to Jacob, even as yeah. Jacob is fleeing back to the, the homeland in Padanaram. Right. I also think it's so interesting that in that next little section that we're going to skip, Esau marries Ishmael's daughter. Mm-hmm. And so you've kind of got this, like, these stories of two sons who have been sort of pushed out of the line of blessing. Mm-hmm. Ishmael, the Abraham's firstborn. Mm-hmm. Esau, who's Isaac's firstborn. And their children mar- marry each other. I don't know yeah. what to make of that, but it's just so interesting to me that they found each other. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love the way that so many of the the groups that will be seen as the adversaries of Israel later in the story are part of the the founding stories too. You know, they were yeah. part of the family too, and they just sort of, there were splits off in the family at different points. Yeah. And the story remains interested in them instead of just saying, yeah. like, you, you split off so we don't care about you anymore. The story remains. Yeah. yeah. Which might remind, remind us that in the original Blessing to Abraham, Back in Genesis 12, God blesses Abraham so that in you all the families of the earth may be blessed. So it's not that Mm. the families who don't inherit the blessing directly are not meant to be blessed ever. It's that the blessing has to proceed this way so that the blessing can branch out that way. I love that. I hadn't thought about it that way before. Okay, so uh, while Jacob is fleeing, he then has this rather remarkable uh, encounter with God, which we will read in Genesis 28, 10 mm-hmm. to 17. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> has Jacob talked to God before? He hasn't, right? He has not. This, this is like a pretty epic moment because Jacob, we don't know what Jacob has been told about God. We haven't been privy to those conversations, but Jacob hasn't had any conversation with God that we yeah. know of. So to like leave home and have this crazy dream and then, he, you know, the Lord is standing beside you. And yeah. sa- I mean, this is, this is like a, a big day for you, Jacob. 
I mean, it's so interesting because it goes back to the conversation we were having a little bit earlier about like, why was it left to Rebecca to sort of make this blessing happen mm-hmm. in the previous story when it is God appears, just shows up and is like, hey, here's your blessing, man. Like mm-hmm. God communicates it directly in this moment. But it's a little bit like, where were you, you know, a chapter ago? Right. Anyway, women that might get be- it done, Bobby. Women get it done. <laughs> no, for real. That might be a conversation we need to we need to come back to. Mm-hmm. How do you picture where? I mean, Jacob is in what becomes Bethel, but at this moment in the story, it's not really any place. Is it, is that how you understand that? Like he's just out in the middle of sort of in between places. I had not thought about that question before. Like when he when he starts out, not where he ends. No, sorry, when this story takes place. So he leaves Beersheba and he's headed toward yeah. Haran. And then mm-hmm. it just said he came toward a certain place. Which at the end of the text, he ah. says, this is Bethel, right? Yes, that's right. He names it there. And you know that the rabbis pick, on, pick up on the fact that it says he came to a certain place or he came to the place. It just has a definite article with oh, it yeah. in, in Hebrew. And, you know, it's weird because we don't know what place they're talking about. Yeah. And the rabbis say, well, we must know this place and imagine that that this is the place where Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac. Oh, interesting. Those rabbis. But yeah, we don't, we don't know, we don't know where they are, but it's a definite noun. So yeah, I don't know. And I just picture this as like, yeah, Jacob is headed from one place to another place. He's in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. The sun goes down. And so he's just like, got to put my head on this rock right here. And so he's just out in kind of out in space is not in space <laughs> like he's not like he's floating around in zero gravity but uh he's out in sort of wilderness area yeah. does that seem fair well and i love the way that idea fits with with his statement you know how wonderful is this place and god is in this place and i didn't know it yeah you know he's just in a place it's not like he came to some you know there are places you encounter in the world that are so exquisitely beautiful that you feel like something Difference. There's some transcendent energy here. There's something holy. And yeah. he's not in that kind of place. He's just, yeah. he's just laying on a rock. In <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Now, this image of the ladder going up and down with the angels going up and down to heaven, mm. you know, as the, the uh, text from which the very well known song, We're Climbing Jacob's Ladder, that's where, where that comes from. What do you make? Like, how do you picture in your head what that is? It would be very awkward to have angels going up and down the same ladder at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Pushing each other off, angels flying off everywhere. It was described to me as being more like an escalator, which of course (laughs) is not a word in biblical Hebrew. There's no word for escalator. Yeah. But I picture an escalator now because I'm I'm like picturing you're at Macy's. We're at Macy's going from like home goods to clothing yeah <laughs> what do you picture well now all i can see so you can tell that i have a three-year-old is like do you know do you know the book corduroy which the with the little oh yeah stuffed bear who goes up the escalator in the department oh, store yeah. like that's totally what i'm seeing now <laughs> <laughs> i love it yeah no i think this word i mean the hebrew there is sulam which i think can probably i mean it could mean a ladder but i think it probably is more like a staircase or maybe even like a ramp mm-hmm. but like we are mm-hmm. climbing jacob's ramp <laughs> just <laughs> doesn't have that ring to it. It just doesn't quite do it for you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought of it as like, you know, there's like a 
two one-way, there's like a down escalator yeah. and an up escalator. Or something that would like be that. less so they, awkward. They come down, or they're sliding of- down the one side of the ladder and shimmy back on the other side. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be funny if it were a ladder, but they weren't using the rungs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we don't know exactly what this thing is. So the, the important point seems to be that one, one end of it is on the earth and the other end of it is in the heavens. And yeah. so there is this sort of space has opened up um, between the human realm and the divine realm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yes. This is somehow a meeting place of, of, of the divine and earthly universe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oftentimes in the Pentateuch, we see like an angel of the Lord shows up and sort of morphs into the Lord or something like that. But here Mm -hmm. the text is pretty direct. The Mm -hmm. Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So there's no ambiguity here about who Jacob is talking to at all. That's pretty cool (laughs) that God just shows up. Like this is not like a regular thing that happens to people. No, (laughs) it definitely is not. This was my biblical sky. I went to the PhD program for years to be able to say that is pretty cool. That is. <laughs> <laughs> that was the outcome of my final. This is not like a regular thing that happens. <laughs> yeah. You all should, yeah, work that into your, yeah. your theological conversations this week. Yeah. yeah. Now, God takes the time here to sort of go back and reiterate mm-hmm. the blessing. It sounds very much like the same words that God used with Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. What do you make the significance of God showing up directly to Jacob to say this, these particular words that God says here? I mean, so the first thing that, what really stood out to me, I don't think exactly, I don't think it exactly answers your question, but is the fact that the promise that he reiterates is land and progeny. Yeah. Like those are really, Really the yep. key points that he makes here. Although, late, you know, our reading ends, but right after this, Jacob responds by saying like, okay, but I also want you to <laughs> give me bread to eat and clothing to wear and return me safely. Like, is, is much more, if God appeared to me right now here yeah. in this office that I'm in and, you know, I got the whole ladder scene and whatever and, and God was going to make a promise to me, I would expect it, not expect it to be, but like, I will take care of you. Like, yeah. I will love you. I will protect you. You will be okay. And that is not the nature of the promise that is being given. I mean, presumably you're not going to die because how would you have progeny? But it's kind of a specific promise. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. I I like all of that. And, you know, like Isaac has already passed this blessing on to Jacob now twice. And so it's interesting that God does it yet a third time. And you sort of have the sense as a reader of like, Almost like this is the one that counts. Like mm-hmm. up until now, we weren't entirely sure. But God here in some sense is confirming the story, which we've just read. Like, yes, the outcome of that story. And now here's officially, I'm going to convey this blessing to you. You're right that God, God does say here, I'm gonna, I'll go with you and keep you wherever you go and I'll bring you back here. So there is a promise of, you know, I will be with you and I'll make sure this mm-hmm. thing, I'll see this thing through. And we're not, you're, we're not reading it as you say, but I love Jacob's response, which is in verse 20, if verse God 20. will be with me and if God will give me food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I do come back here in peace, then the Lord will be my God. 
It ju- it's hysterical. Like he Jacob holds- has has become much more chutzpahdik <laughs> since the last chapter where he was just doing whatever his mama yeah, told him. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So whereas Isaiah, you know, hides his face as soon as he encounters God, Jacob's like, let me push you one step further and see. Mm-hmm. Although to be fair, I mean, his grandfather Abraham had did the same thing uh, with God when it came to, this, to the destruction of, so- of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we, we do have this sort of uh, tradition of bargaining with God. Uh, but this one somehow seems particularly, particularly brazen. We do, but, but I feel like I, Abraham doesn't do it for his own sake. That's right. That's right. You know, but Jacob does. And he, yeah, he's a funny guy, Jacob. Jacob also, I noticed that uh, previously, like he refers to God to, when he's talking to Isaac, he says, the Lord, your God. Yeah. And then here he says, if you do all this stuff for me, then you'll be my God. And so there's this kind of like, okay, you blessed me, <laughs> but that doesn't mean. And so I, mm. I, we talked about this in the, in the story. I can't remember which, probably in the Genesis 22 story, but this idea that God commits the divine self to people. Mm-hmm. without really making sure that they're like committed back. Mm-hmm. And so God kind of gets into some stuff without really knowing, like the, the human partner is a little bit of a wild card in both of these stories, which, which is so interesting to me. Yeah, you know, I'm looking back now, the way that God introduces God's self to Jacob and God says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham and the God of Isaac. But even God doesn't say, I am the Lord, your God here. That is true. Yeah. So the relationship is still a little... A little one step removed. Formative, yeah. Yeah. And God said, I'm all in, right? I'm going to do this for you. Yep. And Jacob has kind of said, eh. If you do all that, (laughs) then you can be my God too. Yeah, let's see. Let's, yeah. Lucky you, God. Once you deliver (laughs) the goods. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, but that's not the point really of this particular exactly story. Like the, the narrative lectionary very nicely ends where Jacob is still very much awed uh, by the by the experience and says this place is awesome surprisingly awesome i had a um a bat mitzvah student who w- had her bat mitzvah during covid and so it was all over zoom and and what she wound up writing about was how first of all all the students were really disappointed to have to have this like epic sacred thing happening over zoom which seemed the opposite of sacred space and so she wrote about this idea that like God is in this place and I didn't know it yeah. as, you know, being able to find God in this, you know, really seems like a very mundane space. Yeah. yeah. I love that. So God is in the places where we don't expect. And yeah. Jacob's not looking for God here at all. Like Jacob is running for his life, headed back to the homeland to make a new life for himself. And it's God's free initiative that shows up in this particular place, which is no place. Yeah. As far as we know. Yeah. And, and creates this whole new blessing. That'll preach. That'll preach. The other thing that I would say just reading this blessing is, so you're right. God does promise Jacob land and progeny. And also God reiterates that promise that we were talking about a minute ago, you shall be spread out on the earth and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is still this sort of like, here's the specific things I'm going to do for you, Jacob. And the, but the end goal is this blessing that is bigger than you. Like I am, God is working 
with all the families of the earth through this particular line of the promise. That that keeps coming up seems, seems significant and sort of keep in, keep in our heads as we read about the chosenness of, of Jacob, the chosenness of Abraham, the chosenness of Jacob, that it's not, it's not a chosenness to the exclusion of everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's a chosenness to the ultimate inclusion of everyone else. Mm-hmm. But it's got to go through this particular path for, for whatever reason. Like God, God apparently has reasons, but it's going to go in this way. <laughs> there are reasons. To everyone else. Yeah. No, I love that. I would love that you underscored that point again. Okay, Amy. So there's a lot going on in these two texts, which are, I mean, they're related, but they're both pretty rich stories. As you're thinking through the story of Jacob and Rebecca and Isaac, and then this encounter with Jacob and, and God at Bethel, what is striking you as the relevance of this text or the importance of this text for our communities today? What's really sort of rising to the top for me is, is that idea of the, the trickster story and what we do with that as modern folks who mostly don't like the idea of deception <laughs> and trickery as a, an avenue towards holiness or right relationship or, you know, whatever terminology you want to put around that. And you alluded to this earlier, maybe you even said it earlier, but it's just really... It's sort of, it's stuck in my mind that, you know, probably all of us have heard by this point the phrase that, that laws are not laws because they're right or fair. They're laws because someone in power decided that should be the law. Yeah. So if you're a person in society, like, you know, in this story, if you're a woman or a younger child or, and you can imagine that the folks in our own society who, who don't have a lot of power, the system just isn't built with them at the center, there is not a fair, quote unquote, fair way to make the world the place that you believe it should be. There is not an avenue to get from A to B. Yeah. And most of the tactics available to you will be deemed out of bounds yeah. by the powers that be. And, and, and all the sort of, quote unquote, fair game tactics aren't available. So Rebecca knew that knew from God, God's self, that the older child, Esau, would serve the younger. And so she takes an active role in making that happen. And it's it's a painful thing to do, in part because the people in power, and in some ways I, I read myself into that in this story because yeah. it makes me uncomfortable. The people in power feel like there's some kind of social agreement that the rules are the rules. And so we feel hurt when people don't follow the rules. But the thing is, for the people who don't get power in the system, there was no agreement that the rules are the rules. Like yeah. those are, they were set up by whoever was in power. This has been a hard thing for me to wrestle with throughout my life because I'm a rule follower. I really want to believe that the rules are fair and I don't want to think about what the rules should be. I just want everyone to follow the rules. And it's it's only been really in in my more recent adult life that it's become more and more clear to me that you can't expect people who are kind of ignored by the power structures that exist to be really invested in holding them up. So I think that as I, as I go back to these trickster stories and feel all the emotional pull of them, and I, and I do naturally empathize with Isaac and Esau in this story, and I have to work a little harder to empathize with Rebecca and Jacob. But in some ways, I think that just shows my privilege in the world that I 
I want them to follow the rules, even though the rules gave them no alternative toward uh, toward getting the blessing. Gave them no avenue. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what this story is bringing up for me today. Yeah, I, I love that, and my head kind of in an interesting way, but maybe slightly new, nuanced slightly differently, went someplace very similar, mm-hmm. and it, it's related to my kind of interest in this text in the characters of Isaac and Esau, Mm -hmm. who like this text is only a tragic text. Like they are like, they experience this text as a tragedy and we didn't really read that part too much, but there is a lot of emotional weeping and gnashing of teeth at the end of this text on the part of Isaac and Esau. But there is nothing at all tragic about this text, unless you assume that you are the one who's supposed to get on, on, if you're Isaac, the one who's supposed to get to deliver the blessing, and if yeah. you're Esau, the one who is by your nature supposed to receive the blessing. This mm-hmm. story is only a tragic story if you assume the privilege of being the one to convey and receive the blessing. Mm-hmm. And so this whole thing about, like, why did they have to manipulate in order to get the blessing to go the, the way that it goes, I think exactly becomes a critique of the, of the system that's in place. Yeah. And, you know, this. God has chosen what God is going to do already, but the, the system that is there, the system of patriarchy, the system of primogeniture, which are in place, as you said, not because of any agreement or not because of any divine mandate, but just because that's the way people who had power decided to make the system. That's what ends up standing in the way of the blessing going the way that it should. Mm-hmm. And to me, that... This question of like, why does God not show up here to me is a really interesting one. Like God chooses to make the blessing go against cultural norms and God's not going to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And I've been going back and forth about whether it's the case that, whether it's the case that God, I don't want to know, like can't do anything about it or God won't do anything about it. But for whatever reason, this closed system of privilege is not open to hearing the sort of disruptive blessing that God is going to bring. And so the people to whom that blessing comes who are outside the power of the system have to do what they do, as you were saying, in order to, to make it work. Mm-hmm. It is then interesting to me that as soon as Jacob is outside of that s- system as it is constructed, the God just shows right on up and says, mm-hmm. like, here's the thing that I'm going to do for you. And so I've just been sort of wrestling around with this idea that of like, where does God show up? To whom does God show up? In what ways do our systems of power and privilege prevent God from showing up or at least prevent us from hearing what God is doing? How does our own assumption of, of privilege or the, the right to give and receive blessing that sort of expected, mm-hmm. especially someone like me, how does that, how does that happen? Um, and uh, and it, to me, that's a really fascinating view of, God, who shows up outside the systems of human power, who creates problematic connections, uh, gives problematic blessings, and then sort of waits for the system to get disrupted. So for people of privilege, uh, like myself, to me, the lesson of this text is you got to step aside from assuming that you're the one who needs the blessing and create space in which God can show up and bless who God will bless. Create space in which um, you can listen to the voices of those who actually have received the blessings of God, but you wouldn't notice uh, because you didn't ask them. 
That's the message of this text. What I come back to, as I've said a couple of times already, is God, it's not the case that Esau and Isaac are not blessed, right? It's the case that God is going to bless Esau and Isaac along with all the families of the earth through Jacob. So God didn't choose the less powerful person instead of the powerful person. God chose to bless the powerful person in a belated manner through the blessing of the less powerful person. And so there's a a lesson here for the Isaacs and the Esau's of the world to, to step back and to let God bless who God will bless and to be patient, wait our turn, support people who have received the blessing and the blessing is gonna come back to you. I really love that. And I love that, I feel like you put a little bit of a tighter edge on some of the thoughts that I have by really closely associating it to issues of privilege in the world right now. And the fact that the grief we may feel over, you know, expectations of things that we have wanted or or thought we should have, the grief is real. Like when something like that is lost, there is real grief about it. And, And we can still hold people through their grief, but that doesn't mean that something bad is happening. Nothing bad is happening. Things are actually happening exactly as they should happen. And our expectations were wrong. And that can be painful. But it has to be corrected, you know, and, and this story is just a great example of, of how it has to be corrected and that nothing bad is happening and nothing really bad is, is happening for Isaac and Esau either. I love that, the idea of sort of relinquishment of expectations. And I, I really appreciate what you're saying about that the pain is real, right? Even, even if the expectations you had were based on something unfair or unrealistic or whatever it is giving that up is still painful. And you can see that in Isaac and Esau. If you go on to read, which maybe we're going to do, I can't remember exactly where the narrative lectionary is going to go, but at the very Mm -hmm. end of this story, Esau does forgive Jacob and welcomes him back. And then you get the sense that they're, they're sort of restored. So over time, Esau does relinquish his grief. And then that result does result in blessing for everybody. So I love what you're saying there about like, acknowledge the reality of loss and experience the grief and let it go and then embrace embrace the people to whom the blessing has been transferred so that the community can can be blessed as a whole. I, I really love that. Good stuff. There's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff in this in this section of text. Have fun with it. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Amy, can you remind me where we are headed next week? I believe it's Genesis 32. Mm, Incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) So next week we are moving into the book of Exodus and we will read about the birth of Moses and the burning bush. Didn't we just do that last? (laughs) Bobby, the burning bush is very popular. It burns, (laughs) but it's not consumed. Yeah, you can't. You can't talk enough about that. All right, well, we will talk about it next time. I look forward to it. Have a good one. You too, Amy. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible Worm podcast for details. 
Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Susie Webster-Toleno and Fiona Morrison. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the call of Moses in Exodus chapters 2 through 4. Until then, keep on digging.